This week on Life and Faith. I remember one time I was going to visit a friend in New York. I hadn't taken leave for quite a while. And I remember talking to a friend in Australia the night before I left and I was just miserable. I just don't want to go. It's just too hard. It would be easier to just go back to work tomorrow. Once I was on the plane and once I was there, I didn't want to go back. But it was just that feeling of stepping out that seemed so daunting. An opinion you can change, like you change a shirt, but a worldview is something like your skin color. It's part of who you are. I want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me. I said, I know what I'll do will be heretical, but I don't want it to be blasphemous. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And Justine Toad here as well, and we're talking to her and putting her under the spotlight about her just-released book in the Reconsidering series that has already covered pessimism with Natasha, compassion with Tim Costello, thinking with Mark Stevens, and now achievement addiction with Justine. Congratulations, Justine. The book's great. People are going to love this. Well done. I hope so. Thanks. <laughs> Real enthusiasm there. Um, so, Justine, I mean, you, you could have written this mini book on anything that you wanted. Um, tell us why did you choose achievement and, and why is it an addiction? Why is that the theme we're going with? Yeah, well, I chose achievement because it seems to me that we have a really conflicted relationship with achievement. I'm talking about culturally speaking, as well as myself and the people I know. Um, And we have a fraught relationship with achievement and far more fraught than we're willing to admit. And I think it becomes all the more complicated because we want achievement. We want people to achieve and, and do their best. But then we don't really always pay attention to what that pursuit of doing your best can do to you personally. And I did call it an addiction in some ways because, I mean, as you guys know, I don't, I don't drink, but that's because I've found my alcohol elsewhere, right? <laughs> Achievement is my alcohol, basically. If you have a, uh, a slightly addicted relationship, let's say, with, um, with some kind of substance, you want it. It's the thing that can make you feel okay in all sorts of different ways. If you are denied it, you can feel really antsy and twitchy. But suddenly when you when you have it, everything feels like it's okay. And so in terms of the intense highs and lows that people can feel if the source of their addiction is denied to them or given to them, I think that is what achievement does for plenty of us. And I would say that it does that for me too. Yes, Justin, you have a there's a very important kind of biographical element to this for you, which I thought you brought in really beautifully, actually. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I I suppose I had a bit of a double whammy. Um, There's the whole cliche of Asian parenting that's out in the the ether. And my family particularly also um, is quite achievement oriented. There's a whole interesting story about that, which I can't really quite get into. But the basic idea is that academic success was extremely important in my family. If I came second in my class, this is not good enough. And this is also because I was not able to get into a selective high school, but my older sister did. And that kind of immediately sets up this dynamic where she can do nothing wrong, whereas I'm in the wrong school, I'm coming like second or whatever, but it's not good enough. And even if I come 
first in this context. You know, I'm only going to be in the middle of the pack at a selective school cohort. So this is the kind of major chip on my shoulder I I had. You're kind of working through the wounds of (laughs) adolescence. Look, you're getting me on the other side of that. Yes, well, let's see how far you are on the other side of that. But the the idea of the tiger mum is well known. It's the achievement-oriented, harsh, demanding, perhaps overly critical. Does that just then describe your experience? I would say to a degree. I'm not here to like throw my parents under the bus. I think no. that they're formed by a particular culture as well with all these um, imperatives to achieve. And there's a significant kind of family backstory to that as well. But it's important to say that Amy Chua, um, who wrote the book on being a tiger parent, she wrote this, it was published 10 years ago. And she has said that it's a bit of a satire. So it's heightened and over the top. Now, she might be saying that because the reaction was so violent that she has to say, oh, it's a bit of an exaggeration. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but her kids have come out and said, why did you write it like that? It wasn't always like this. And right. these are kind of like, you know, they are heightened um, kind of experiences. But she was making a point. She was making a point. But you read some of this stuff, like you hear how she kind of asked her daughters to do a second draft of the happy birthday card that they gave her because the first wasn't good enough. So when you read <laughs> things like that, I felt really bad for her kids, right? Um, I will say that it was very therapeutic in a way to kind of read these experiences as well. There's just that power of seeing something that isn't like, you know, it's not exactly like your experience, obviously, but it's a power of seeing that someone else has gone through this sort of thing as well. And there's a scene that I wanted to just read you a little chunk of. She's encouraging her 13-year-old daughter, Sophia, to lean into being the eldest and the responsible child in the family. And Amy is saying that it's a privilege to play that role. And then this is what she says. The problem is that Western culture doesn't see it that way. In Disney movies, the good daughter always has to have a breakdown and realise that life is not all about following rules and winning prizes and then take off her clothes and run into the ocean. But that's just Disney's way of appealing to all the people who never win any prizes. Winning prizes gives you opportunities, and that's freedom, not running into the ocean. Oh, I'm <laughs> so, quibble with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, she's triggering you. But there's something... <laughs> running into the ocean. Well, <laughs> Simon's pro the ocean. Okay, <laughs> anyone There's something about the way that... Sorry, sorry, Justin, go ahead. The way that Amy is so blunt and impatient, I guess, with the emotional life or, you know, the whole quest to find yourself and be true to yourself, etc. It's so recognisable to me as the child of an, of an Asian upbringing. And so I find that scene deeply funny as well as very triggering because you are seeing the clash of two different cultures come into play and are summed up perfectly in that, you know, this is how would Disney portray this. Because there are different extremes there. There's the kind of like everybody gets a prize and let's all just be happy and not, you know, compete uh, hard and then there's kind of the extreme like meritocratic achievement is everything um, but of course for you there's this and for a lot of people and for our culture particularly here in Australia there's a racial and ethnic overlay to this which you kind of lean into in the book this is kind of a bit of a tightrope that you walk here <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah that's right I had a friend who was saying to me how are you going to critique achievement and talk about your own experience as well, but without licensing racism, right? And if you kind of think about it, the reaction to Amy Chua was so racially loaded. It was like she became this lightning rod for tensions over the rise of China, and it probably tapped all this resentment slash admiration for 
Asians in America as this model minority, you know, this hardworking group, self-reliant, they're respectable and they're prosperous, right? And I think in some ways that gets replicated in our own context, in Sydney and Melbourne, definitely. There's a real angst and resentment at Asian parents and their high-achieving kids. There's, I mean, tuition, um, school tuition, at least 75%, and that's me being conservative, right? A 70, At least 75% clientele is Asian for, for after-school tuition. And then there's this whole submerged narrative around how if you're going to send your kid to a selective school, well, everyone in the crowd is going to have dark hair, right? They're going to be Asian. Um, and it was funny, I, I dropped this out of the book, but I was going to make a crack about how at the Brownlow medal ceremony, no one's going on about this sea of blonde hair throughout the whole place. But in, in a selective school context, that can kind of be triggering for people. And it's this idea that, you know, they are taking our kids' places. So that's the context. And it's like I want to poke the bear or at least tickle it a little bit and say, oh, what are we doing here? <laughs> Well, Justin, you, you kind of res- try to resolve that racial issue in an interesting and some might say risky way by saying everyone is kind of Asian now. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess I'm playing with this idea that Asians get stereotyped as being hard workers and the achievement-oriented types and everyone else is, is not like that. Um, and I do recognise, obviously, that it's easily misunderstood. I had an exchange with a journalist um, on Twitter and she was saying, it's not an Asian thing, it's a Jewish thing. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not just an Asian thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. You're right. It's, maybe you could say it's an immigrant thing as well, right? It's this desire to kind of prove yourself and to work hard, therefore. But I kind of say everyone is kind of Asian now because I don't want people to let themselves off the hook. I think that we're in an achievement-oriented society to the extent that trying to do well and trying to succeed in life is really everyone's game, right? Everyone's working hard towards some kind of goal that represents success for them. That might be the corner office. It might be, what, like a mansion. It might be winning a sporting match, right? Like there's Tiger parents who are all Tiger sporting coaches that I talk about as well. So I think everyone's really working hard in order to make something of themselves in life. And I want to just play you a clip of Amy Chua, the author of the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother book. She's talking to CNN about other reactions she received. And here are some interesting ones. Also, um, emails from strangers. I mean, one that you would never expect. I never expected. I had hundreds of emails from 14-year-olds. This is the strangest thing. That would write, and always 14. And they would say, I read your book. I don't know how. And you know what? I don't have strict parents, but I want to do better. I want to be successful. So I'd like to be my own tiger mother. And I'm wondering if you could give me a schedule and advice. (laughs) Yeah, this is interesting. So this is kind of 10 years ago. And I guess those 14-year-olds are like the end of the millennial generation. Millennials kind of feeling that need to make something of themselves, um, to always be productive, you know, this is this is what it is to make your way within a meritocracy, which before you called the book Achievement Addiction, we did think of it as being about meritocracy. How are those things related? Yeah, um, I suppose a good way to think of it is think of an aristocracy. If you're an aristocrat, you're born to a particular position in life. You're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You might be born to a rich family or royalty, and that kind of sets you up in life. 
Whereas a meritocracy is all about merit. You make your own way in the world on the basis of your hard work. So you could be a peasant, but through the enterprising kind of um, attitude you bring to your work, the hard work that you do, um, all the connections you make, etc., this can mean that you rise in the world. And we would look at a meritocracy and say this is far more democratic and it's far more equal and just than an aristocracy where no one's done anything to earn their success. And so we have this meritocratic mindset, I call it in the book, and, and that's expressed through the formula, hard work plus perseverance equals success that you have rightly earned. But what's really ironic about the whole thing is that this term meritocracy was coined by a British sociologist, Michael Young, and he was actually very critical about the idea of meritocracy. He said that if we have a system where it's all about how hard you work, we're going to wind up with a two-tiered class system where you've got the deserving haves, the people who worked really hard for what they got on top, and on the bottom you'll have the undeserving have-nots who literally have no one else to blame for their failure, in inverted commas, in life other than themselves. And this is really picked up um, in critics of meritocracy in recent years. We have Michael Sandel talking about the tyranny of merit, right? It's a tyrannical system because it's all about you making your success in the world. And if you don't do it, you didn't try hard enough. Sorry, you know, it's quite harsh in that sense. The other part to that, Justine, is um, you mentioned the way in which people are sort of in, a, in an aristocracy are given this sort of avenue towards whatever it is they put their mind to. And, and of course, the, the, the sort of the myths around meritocracy would have it that you know, anyone can do it as long as they work hard. Whereas, in fact, of course, we know that there are many ways in which various systems uh, support some people and really deny opportunities to others. Yeah, it actually, what it does effectively is it blinds you to all the other opportunities that you've been given in life. And it basically says you have only yourself to blame if you don't make it and only yourself to congratulate if you um, do. And, you know, what is it like to be a woman navigating like a world where there are all these invisible barriers in your way. If you can't succeed on those terms, are you a failure? It's, it can be quite harsh in that sense. And that's just one picture of, of how we might understand um, meritocracy and its, and its limitations. Yeah, I mean, there are all these ways that the meritocracy is kind of an illusion, like it's an imperfect one. But we do, we do like the idea of, you know, working hard and doing well and living in a society where that does work, right? It's not all bad. No, that's right. And it's interesting... I you know, every week, my kids, um, who are very young, five and seven, they get weekly lessons on grit and growth mindset. And it's basically this meritocratic mindset. You've got to keep trying and never give up. Hard work leads to success. And like, if I'm honest, I want my kids to learn how to work hard. But then I'm also conscious that we are also socializing them bit by bit in a system that actually encourages them to see their value in terms of their achievements. But at the same time, we are telling them, you aren't your achievements. We don't love you just because of your achievements. This is why I'm saying that it's a very fraught relationship that we have with success. And I think it's really telling that in any kind of normal, non-pandemic, non-lockdown year, for the kids who are sitting their final school exams, a lot of them feel like the ATAR, that the number that results from that becomes a measure of them as a person. And in some ways, you might argue that if they have to find different ways to assess kids because of the pandemic, maybe that's a good thing because it would you know, lessen our attachment to this idea of a final number that's supposed to sum them up. But you know, even beyond school, the fact that we have 
performance review processes in the workplace and KPIs, etc. I mean, obviously, there's a good and it's a good way to track your progress. But there's also some performance review systems that, get this, wind up rating employees against each other and then distributing rewards or, you know, working out who to fire on the basis of that. Like, it's brutal. Who gets voted off the island. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's Survivor. Now, Justine, when you were writing your book, I couldn't help but be reminded of this also from a few years ago. The government's solemn duty is to build a stronger Australia. This budget will help build a more prosperous nation. Every generation before us has contributed to the quality of life that we enjoy today. Prosperity isn't a matter of luck. Prosperity is not a gift. It has to be earned. So now it is our turn to contribute. Now it is our turn to build. Now, later in that speech, Joe Hockey, who was federal treasurer at the time, said Australia was a nation of lifters, not leaners, <laughs> needing to contribute to the public purse rather than take from it. You've got to have a go to get a go, as they say. Now, it's a reminder, isn't it, that even if you are not an achievement addict yourself, we are all, to some extent, subject to this meritocracy, right? Yeah, I mean, you could say that my book is maybe aimed at the super high achievers, you know, like the kind of academics, the cardiologists, as we'll see, you know, all these kinds of people. But if you think about it, when hockey is addressing the nation, he's like talking to everyone in the class. Now, in that class, we might say, you've got a handful of people up the top, maybe the the top 10, 20% who are the achievement addicts in the way that I talk about in this book. But then you've got 80%, right? The rest of that bell curve, the rest of the distribution of results. And these guys are still in the same class as the achievement addicts, but in some ways they have to live in the world that the achievement addicts have made. And if you are in a, at a point where you're an achievement addict and you think that your success is due to your own good effort then what are you going to think about the 80% of people who aren't as successful as you? In fact, um, Michael Sandel and other scholars in this area have said that the recent kind of populist revolts, you know, the election of Donald Trump to the US presidency, the Brexit vote in the UK, they're saying that this represents the revolt of the masses against the educated elites, in some ways the, the achievement addicts of the world, because they've had to live in the world where their interests aren't represented at that high arc level. And they can kind of detect a really sneering, perhaps, or smug attitude to people who aren't like them. I mean, Hillary Clinton during the election campaign talked about Trump supporters as a basket of deplorables. No one likes being looked down upon. And these guys have said, this is what happens if you have a society that is only organised around the interests of a very few. The people who feel left out of the system aren't happy about it and they're going to actually rise up against it. You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX and Natasha and I are talking to Justine about her new book, Achievement Addiction. And it's the latest in the Reconsidering series from CPX and Acorn Press. Now, we'll go back to our conversation with Justine in a moment. But she caught up with someone who wouldn't describe themselves as an achievement addict, but whose experience provides a really interesting perspective on achievement. This is Julia, a cardiologist in her 30s, now pursuing a PhD, and who lives and works in Sydney. 
I did an undergraduate degree uh, initially, and then I um, studied um, postgraduate medicine. And after that, uh, as you do, started internship and residency um, at a teaching hospital in Sydney. Um, And that's, I guess, where I kind of got on the treadmill of medicine, where you start um, looking at training programs. Um, I started physician training, uh, written exam, clinical exam, and then... uh, at that point, you choose your subspecialty training, and I elected to do cardiology, and that starts three years of training, advanced training in cardiology before then becoming um, kind of a fully-fledged, um, albeit new, cardiologist. And how did it feel every time you kind of made the next step? What was that like for you? Um, I guess it was good. I mean, um, some of the big points are where you um, pass certain exams that you have to pass to reach the next level. In, in my case, there were the physician's exams, a written exam, which lasts the whole day, and you study for kind of after hours um, in the months leading up to it, and then a clinical exam where you fly into state and have a, a day of uh, seeing patients observed by examiners. And they're kind of, I think at the time, they're, they're a big deal for you, um, and they take up a lot of your time uh, and a lot of your life. And once you jump those hurdles, there's a feeling partly of satisfaction, but I think a huge amount of relief. Um, to have moved on uh, past those things. And when you say like at the time they could be quite a big deal for you, what, what sort of effects were you um, experiencing from the pressure of those things? I think that you get really focused. It's the only thing in the world. You know, you go to work and you do your job, but then what you talk about amongst your colleagues is often the exams. What you do in your breaks is study for the exams. What you do after hours is you know, either spend time at the hospital seeing patients for the exams or um, study for the written exam. So it's really kind of an all-consuming time for a couple of years. Is it hard not to have your, I guess, identity wrapped up in how you go in that exam? Absolutely. So um, I was I was very lucky. I um, I passed the exams first go, and um, I've seen lots of people far more skilled and intelligent than me not. Um, and I think that um, seeing how that affects them and uh, affects their view of themselves was really, I guess, interesting but incredibly sad because you know we, we could look and say we know how brilliant they are, um, but they couldn't say that in themselves. They just felt that you know having not jumped over the hurdle with some kind of reflection on who they were. And I guess in terms of how I found my identity, I I definitely didn't even think about it at the time. And it's only really in the last year or two since I've stepped away from doing the majority of clinical work to doing a lot more research that I realised absolutely I was finding identity in my work. Yeah. Tell me what happened, because it seems that you don't have quite the same attitude anymore. Yeah, so after I finished my cardiology training, I decided to um, take a bit of a break from full-time clinical work. I now work clinically one day a week and do four days a week of research. And I think that it was a really tumultuous first six months. Um, And only with the benefit of hindsight can I realise it was because I went from being really useful in the hospital and getting things done and I felt like I had a role and um, I would get things done every day and and see immediate results, would I kind of sit there looking at my computer wondering what I was doing? Um, (laughs) And nothing seemed to happen for many months at a time, despite my best efforts. And also I was out of the clinical setting. And I think it's just the the realisation that, hang on a second, maybe a lot of my self-worth was wrapped up in what I did. And that was a a very strange and unexpected realisation for me. 
So how did you navigate that? So I don't think I uh, navigated it particularly well for at least probably six months or 12 months or so. And I guess once I started to settle into the routine of a PhD and the the slower pace of things, um, that just let me relax a little bit and then start to do things that I'd really not done much before, which was really just enjoy a full weekend without, you know, thinking about work or um, sometimes even preferring to be at work. It was easier to go to work. Um, And you say you're not an achievement addict. (laughs) (laughs) There are a few kind of interesting points along the way that in hindsight were very telling, but at the time I just completely missed the relevance of those feelings. It was about then that one of Julia's colleagues let her know about a course run by her church. Intrigued, Julia decided to check this out. I went along to that just thinking, I now have my evenings free, so why not? And, you know, within the first kind of couple of sessions in our group and evenings together, it felt like the it just kind of all made sense to me. And the questions that were being asked, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've never asked that question, but that is exactly the question that I have. So what was um, the question? A big one for me is, is there more to life than this? It was kind of one of the taglines of the course. And objectively, you know, people would probably say that I'd achieved uh, a reasonable amount. I um, was living a comfortable life. I had a good job. I had good prospects for the future. And I should be happy and I should be contented. I wasn't necessarily unhappy, but I definitely had a sense of unease and a sense that something wasn't quite right and something was missing. And I, and I didn't know what that was. And I think that what was missing was in the back of my mind saying, well, hang on, is there more to life than this? If not, maybe that's okay, but I don't know if there is. And that was a very uh, confronting thought to have, but exciting at the same time. So after that course, I did another course, and then I joined a kind of discussion group later in the year. And it was really over a period of months that I came to see that something was missing and that it was okay to identify that and also dedicate some time to trying to thinking about it. It wasn't a waste of time to think about it because it wasn't medicine. Um, in the years prior, why would someone read something that wasn't related to medicine? I just couldn't understand. I didn't read. I didn't read novels. I didn't. I'd read the newspaper, but and all of a sudden, I thought, well, actually, maybe it is worth dedicating some time. Um, to reading about this and thinking about it. And so what I did was um, I'd go to the courses or the, or the discussion group each week, which I really started to find the highlight of my week to have really meaningful discussions with people about really meaningful things, even though there was a lot of disagreement and a lot of vigorous discussion. It was very uh, both intellectually interesting, but also really heartening experience to be meeting with people who were asking the same kind of questions that I was asking And so finally, can you give us an insight into how this exploration has given you a new perspective when it comes to achievements and or your career or your work? It has, um, I think, completely changed the way that I see the world. The things I've read and heard and come to understand have allowed me to see things clearly, I think, for the first time. And in terms of career, It's made me, I think, put it in its correct place, um, which is part of my life, but not my life. Um, Definitely not my identity, which is incredibly liberating. And that's led to huge shifts in the way that I feel each day, a real sense of peace, and also being able to truly enjoy each day, enjoy and derive boundless joy from family and friends and relationships, which I think started to lack when I just was so focused on career. That was Julia, who feels as though she's put career in its correct place. Justine, we've spoken about the ways that our culture is addicted to achievement. 
Um, Your book is also attentive to like what an obsession with achievement does to people, spiritually speaking. Yes, I think that, um, you know, if we're in a system that's always encouraging you to see your worth in terms of what you can do, then this becomes a key way that you would see yourself as a person, but also has a deeper kind of spiritual overtone to that as well. It's like um, you think that by being good, for example, some people think that they can get into heaven, if I can put it that way, right? That the strength of someone's moral performance is going to mean that God or whatever has to scratch their back somehow, let them in because they've tried really hard to be good. In some ways, it's exactly the opposite of what Christianity happens to be about, but we still believe this in some ways. Mm -hmm. But I also am interested in how people look to their achievements to do some identity work for them, right, to kind of guarantee that they've lived a meaningful life or that they matter. It's this idea that when you look to your achievement, well, when I've looked to my achievements, it's like I can finally know that I'm okay and that I'm accepted because I've done well in this space. So, you know, I've lived in in this space and I see a lot of people maybe a lot of women, right? I've seen a lot of women do this as well. And I'm just like, I think we need to call it out. But at the same time, I recognize how tricky it is because I would say that workaholism, for example, is one of the very socially acceptable addictions that we have out there. And, you know, we're in a system that's always about, you know, what's our GDP? How can we drive economic prosperity, etc.? We as a society have a lot to gain from people being addicted to their work, a system where people see a lot of self-worth in their work. But, you know, as any of us would know, if you are talking to a friend or a child who feels really upset that they've lost their job or they've gotten a bad mark, of course, the thing that you want to say to them and the thing that is absolutely true is that you are loved and accepted, not because of what you've done here. This has nothing to witness about who you are as a person. But it's just really hard for people to get that if they've been in a system where that has told them the reverse, you know, like most of their life. Early on in the book, you mentioned the psychotherapist Carl Jung and his observations about the connection between addiction and spirituality. Yeah, this is really fascinating. So I came across this exchange of letters between Bill Wilson, who's the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, hmm. and Carl Jung. And in that, Jung was suggesting that a former patient of his, who was an alcoholic, was really thirsting after God, actually, and kind of looked to alcohol as a substitute sort of fix, I suppose. And uh, Jung wound up quoting um, a line from a psalm um, in the footnotes of that letter, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for thee. So it's this idea that, you know, there is a kind of thirst that we feel and there is a spiritual thirst that we feel and God is what will quench someone's spiritual thirst. But if you can't get drunk on God, you'll get drunk on something else, perhaps. <laughs> so it's almost a, like, fight fire with fire, like pit your potential addictions against each other? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this book is kind of takes its cue from Augustine, who famously said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, right? He's talking to God. And it's this idea that... The human is someone who needs their life to revolve around something. And Augustine says the human is the person whose life has to revolve around God. And if not God, then something else. And that something else becomes your addiction of choice. In my case, it becomes achievement. And this is how you know that you matter, that that you know that you are accepted, etc. But I want to suggest in this book that it may actually be 
quite a profound achievement in some ways to lean into this idea that we don't ultimately earn our way in the world. We don't ultimately earn the love of our friends and family and perhaps in the biggest sense of God. And, you know, like a lot of the critics who've been writing about this have noted it's not as though anyone earns a hard work ethic. No one earns being born into a family that prizes achievement. No one earns the society they're born into, the time and place, right? And all these different things are going to um, privilege your ability to work hard for the success in your life. And it's ridiculous to kind of say, I did it all on my own. It's like, no, you didn't. You didn't do any of it. Sorry. (laughs) Sandel in particular has said that, this focus on meritocracy blocks the idea of grace or good fortune. I mean, he's not a Christian, so he's happy to kind of leave it at that. And I think he's absolutely right, though. There is no way that we are responsible for, in some ways, the role of the dice that put us where we are today. And I think really acknowledging that is a profound source of humility, but also gratitude, really, for the opportunities that we've been given. And I think that that posture of gratitude and humility, and maybe even gratitude to someone perhaps, right? I think that is far more healthy than feeling as though that the success of your life comes down to you, that you have to strive for your significance. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, Natasha Moore and Justine Toe. Justine's book is Achievement Addiction. Check it out at reconsidering.com.au or at Kurong. It's also available at Amazon. Do share this conversation with someone who you think might get something out of it. Next week. In some ways, the drive is even stronger in people that have had difficult childhoods to give their child something different. So I don't worry for the people that have had difficult experiences because in our vast interviews and discussions and email threads, we see people that are desperate to do the opposite.